Welcome to the Mastering College to Career Podcast, where we're here to help you land your dream job. So if at any time during this episode you find any value, please make sure you take a screenshot and you share it with a friend. And don't forget, make sure you leave us a review on iTunes. That will mean the world. So without further ado, enjoy this episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to this episode of the Mastering College to Career Podcast. I have such a great guest for you today, and I can't wait for us to get into this conversation. So I have Dale Whitaker, the former president of UCF, and we're here to talk about how does first-generation college students succeed in college and the difference of what we see in, you know, in the 21st century universities versus the 20th century universities. So without further ado, Dale, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Hey, great. First of all, thanks, uh, Daniel, for inviting me. This is a uh, important and great service that you're providing, and I look forward to connecting with your listeners and your viewers today. Doing great up here on, on the island in Lake Superior. Beautiful, beautiful. Dell. I just want to, you know, I have a lot of audience that are not from UCF, but it, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about you, your background, and, you know, more important, I really wanted to know, how, how did you go from, you know, architect? agricultural and engineering to university president? Well, let me uh, just say that, um, Daniel, my, my father did go to college, but he was the first one in his town uh, that went to college, and he came from a dairy farm. I grew up in agriculture. I grew up uh, on a family business uh, out in the middle of nowhere in central Texas. Um, and for me, I was I knew that there was more than what I saw in my town. And what I saw in my town were a few teachers from my school, a a minister. We didn't really even see a doctor in our town, but there were only about a half a dozen of us from my high school that went on to college. And for me, it opened my eyes, it opened doors. Um, It was the first time I left the country and saw something outside of my culture. Uh, And it did change my life. uh, In fact, uh, at the end of my undergraduate career, my father asked me, do you want to be in the family business or don't you? Because you and your, there's probably not enough room for you and your brother if, uh, unless we buy some more uh, fertilizer plants in in this case. And I said, you know, dad, no, I think I want to do a PhD. And so I continued on. And, uh, you know, now much like you, Daniel, my, commitment uh, is to help other people open doors for other people so they can use college to lift their life and create a livelihood, you know, that uh, creates a different future than they would have had without it. I have a question because now like there's a big debate with is going to college worth it? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Because now like, I think people are now saying, why would I go to college incur so much student debt and then graduate and not have, you know, a job lined up? Yeah. Well, first of all, let's just parts those three things out, go to college, have student debt and have a job. Okay. So going to college uh, during the recession, you know, which I was very, uh, I was uh, in, I was raising children during the recession and it was an important uh, time in my life. Um, During the recession, about 11 and a half million jobs were ta- in the United States were taken out of the economy. I, I'm sorry, I got that wrong, about six and a half million. After their session, about 11 and a half million were added back into the economy. Of the ones that were added back into the economy, 
only about 80,000 required a high school degree only. So a lot of the jobs that were taken out of the economy during the recession were labor and manufacturing jobs and so on. A lot of what was added in was high tech uh, and jobs of the mind and new businesses and new services. So I don't think that this discourse that you don't need a college degree to get a good job is really valid. You know, people hold up examples of welders and those are good examples, $80,000 jobs, but there's only a handful in any city and there are none in factories. So uh, plumbers, you know, there's a handful, but uh, to get the jobs that the economy is generating right now really requires a good college degree, a good high quality quality college degree. Now, let's go into student debt. Many people do incur loans. And I've always said that if you have to take a loan to get a degree, as long as your costs are low and you're not using the loan to live on, then you uh, have taken a very good loan. So at the university that you and I know, UCF, the average loan for those that took one, which was less than 50% of the students, um, was under $25,000. You can't buy a very good car <laughs> for under $25,000. You can't start a Subway franchise for under $25,000. You know, if you think about that, um, the rule of thumb is don't take out any more debt than you expect to make in your first year of salary. Uh, and most of our students were starting in the 30 up to $60,000 range. You know, if there were uh, engineers, for example, 50 to 60 was not unheard of. $35,000 was the average starting salary across all majors at UCF, and that's not unusual across the United States. So the UCF students and students across the country that go in-state, go to a public university, and every state has really good research one, public, high-quality universities, have the ability to get a good degree probably not incur over $30,000 worth of debt if they're careful and then get a, a good high quality job that will last their career and will return on the investment that they made. So let me just give a couple uh, rules of thumb there. I mentioned one, try really hard not to take out any more debt than you expect to make in your first year of salary. Number two, don't take out debt to live on. So many of our students at UCF worked you know, for their living expenses, and they borrowed for their educational expenses. I would tell you, I think, and if I go back, I graduated with $20,000 as a student debt. I would say that out of that $20,000, I probably only use three to 5000 for tuition and spend the rest on living expenses. And I think it was one of the hardest money to pay back because yeah. I know how I use that money, right? Like, because I know that money wasn't, because I had partly bright futures and because I had some Pell Grants because I I come from a lower income family. Yep. Uh, I, did, I didn't need to take those student debt, but I think it was because it was so easy and I never really had money that I was like, I felt like free money when in reality it wasn't. And for the first three years out of college, all my yearly bonuses went towards paying that student debt. And it was hard because as I saw my coworkers were able to do a lot with those bonuses, I was paying back money that I misused. And I'd be the first one to, to say it. Yeah. So if you and I, Daniel, could get a message to first generation kids before they get into college, that is, you know, if you can 
if you can work your way through college and pay for your expenses or stay at home or whatever you need to do and just borrow enough to get your degree, educational expenses, then when they graduate and it's time to look at jobs, I don't know if you went through this, but I've worked with a lot of students. They're saying, okay, I could take the job I really want or I can make $200 more a month taking a job that I don't really want, but at least I could pay back my debt. And that's a really difficult situation to find yourself in where you're making the decision of your career based on paying back your student debt. No, I absolutely agree. I talk a lot about that as well, about only getting student loans, what you need for tuition and not using your living expenses. Because I mean, I lived through that mistake. Um, Let's talk about, you know, first generation college students starting out college and how, you know, how do, what resources are available for them in, in most schools, in a sense, to help them graduate? Because their graduation rate is not as high as second or third generation. It's a really good question. So number one, uh, as a first generation, you don't have your parents to tell you how they did it. That may be an advantage. It may be a, a disadvantage. But sometimes parents are giving advice that's 20 years old, and it, it doesn't work as well uh, for you know, someone that's in college right now. There are a lot of resources. Uh, The first thing you want to do is make sure that you are seeing a good academic advisor uh, so that you're not taking courses that you think you want to take or should take or your roommate told you to take, but then you find out that they really didn't count towards your degree. So it's not bad to take courses for fun, uh, but most degrees have flexibility in the electives that allow you to take a few fun courses and exploratory courses Uh, And it still counts towards your degree. You just want to know that you're doing it deliberately if you do that. Um, Number two, there are usually scholarship resources for first-generation students. And like you mentioned, um, often before you make the decision to go to college, the cost looks very different than after you've made the decision to go to college. And what I mean by that is um, for, for people that are thinking about college, it's real easy to be wowed by large scholarship offers, especially from private universities, let's say, until you find out what the actual cost is. And you really have to balance the the net tuition minus the scholarship at all of your choices to figure out how you stand financially. A lot of times you won't get as much from a public university in scholarship aid, but the tuition is way lower So at the end of the day, you may actually be ahead. Um, Many universities, Daniel, as you know, have scholarships that are not advertised. And they're in your major, like if you decide you want to go into engineering or into history or into business, you don't find out about those until you're already a student. And so go looking for those scholarships. Ask your advisor for those uh, scholarship opportunities. And then the last one that we may riff on a little bit here is faculty. It's really important to get to know a faculty member as in your major as early as you can, because they're the ones that start helping you understand what the major is really like, getting those first summer jobs. And if you can get a good career-based job or internship early on, like at UCF, we had great uh, internships with Lockheed Martin and with Siemens and with Universal. If you know about those early on and don't wait until your junior or senior year, you really get a leg up uh, to have a career option when you graduate. So those are some of the resources I can think about. Is there things that, you know, 
that if first generation college students or even any student does that correlate to higher success five to 10 years after graduation? Is there like, for example, if a student did three internships, the odds of them graduating with a job are this much higher. Do you guys as a university look at those kind of things and say, all right, community service, internship, and not changing majors are all correlations of somebody graduating on time and graduating with the job? Is yeah, it like that? no question. <laughs> you hit them. You hit them right there. So let's start with uh, changing majors. It doesn't hurt to change majors once in your first two years. That's really, it's important to figure out what you really want to do if you can figure that out. Um, if you change twice or if you change in your last two years, then you're probably adding a year to two years to your graduation. I mean, you hit it on the head. The second thing is if you have an internship after your sophomore year rather than after your junior year, you are much more likely to have a job with the same company or a company in that industry. If you have a, a internship after your freshman year, um, then it's even a higher likelihood. So many universities have co-op programs that allow you to work every other semester or every third semester uh, while you continue to go to college. It's really important, Daniel, if you can afford it, to have a job that is in your major as early as possible, as opposed to, let's say, working at the bookstore or working at the local restaurant, um, you know, for your 20 hours a week. If you could pull off working in, a, if you're an elementary ed major, if you could work in an elementary school um, for that 20 hours a week, you are so much farther ahead. So look at your university pr for programs like UCF had with Lockheed Martin allow you to work in your in your um, major in your discipline as early as possible and earn good money and earn good experience yeah definitely and what you know i do a lot of research on career services and i am always shocked at why there's a sm small number of percentage of students that actually take advantage of career services why do you think that is that's it and what would you say to students and that maybe have not visited their career service department and why they should? Yeah. Um, when I was at Purdue, I was there for 13 years, and we had a culture, especially in the College of Agriculture, of requiring students to put together a resume, go to a career fair, and actually register their resume online with career services their freshman year. And a lot of times the students would be like, you know, I, I'm not competitive. I can't compete with a senior to get a job or a junior to get a job. And it's like, no, that's not what it's about. It's about starting to build that resume and that relationship and understand the process with career services. Now, I've been at two other universities where career services was part of student affairs. They didn't really, and frankly, UCF is one of those. They didn't really encourage students as freshmen or sophomores uh, the College of Business uh, did a good job. So I think what I would tell students is look at your career services, go over there your very first year, try to get a resume, even if it's light, put together, decide what you want that resume to look like by your senior year. Do you want to have three internships? Do you want to have been a president of an organization that made an impact, a student organization? Um, do you want to have a study abroad or volunteerism on your resume. Decide what that is and start building that resume 
your first year. Having said that, it is possible that you, at some schools that your best relationship is in your major and your college rather than at a more abstract central career services organization that serves sort of all majors. Very, very interesting. What do you think, you know, is there correlation on numbers of student success when it comes to students who are involved in student organizations or are involved with other campus activities versus students that are just attending class and going home? Yeah, Um, I think the number one word is engagement. Engage with each other, engage with your university, engage with faculty, and engage with your career, your discipline. Um, I have seen students, however, Daniel, that uh, I would say almost over-engage in student organizations and activities at the expense of engaging with their discipline in their career. You know, their major and uh, being willing to leave in the summers or leave in a semester to do a, a career-oriented internship. So I think there's a, a balance there. But uh, in any case, engaging with the university and with uh, your professors and with your career are so important. If you go to a school, go home, you've got a lot higher. You are your own support network. If you go to school and you engage, Everybody else is there to support you and help you. And then one last question before we really kind of talk about more about 21st century universities and 20th century universities. Let's talk about how, how do students, you know, find success in large or universities, right? Because there is this universities with tens, tens of thousands of students. And then there's this private universities that might have less than 10,000. And sometimes when you are part of, you know, 60,000 students, you might feel like just a number. But how do you stand out within one of those 60,000 students and being able to find success after college? Yeah, I think it has to do with that word engagement. You know, be that there there are always, no matter whether you're going to a school of 1,200 students or 70,000 students, there are always about 80% who engage, step out, push themselves beyond their own uh, self-imposed boundaries. And there's always 80% uh, typically that uh, don't. And and the challenge is you be that 20%. You know, you be that uh, one that pushes uh, beyond your own comfort zone. 10% beyond your own comfort zone is what I always challenge students to do. And if you do that, that's one thing. The second thing, though, uh, that I always told freshmen students and their parents is no matter what size the university is, Look for 40 to 50 people that really make you your best you. Sometimes that's joining the intramural lacrosse team. Sometimes that's in your dorm. Sometimes that's in the um, ambassadors for the College of Business, let's say. And that's a way to get a support network that breaks the university down. And regardless of the size, you need that. You need that 40 to 50 people that know who you are, have your back, and you have their back, and you're comfortable together. And you can draw strength and go from there. Love it, love it, love it. So, Dell, let's talk about, you know, where do you see the difference in the university of the future versus the universities that we have now? The university of the future is grounded in its place. I'll use UCF as an example. It drives the Orlando economy and is driven by the Orlando economy. It generates talent that brings companies that grow Orlando. 
the great 20th century universities, much like the ones that I went to, Texas A&M and Purdue, uh, are often set out in a remote location, at least when they're founded, like Gainesville in Florida, like Penn State in the state of Pennsylvania, many of the great 20th century universities. You could put them up, pick them up, and put them in another state, and they would be the same university because they're very much about their faculty, about students going to them, and then leaving them in the summer, going to them, and then leaving them for a career. And I'm not disparaging 20th century universities, but those are not the ones that will be preeminent in this century. I believe that the city universities will be, in many cases, 21st century universities. Universities that run year-round. Universities where students can have a career and go to college at the same time. They don't have to make a choice between the two. Universities that cater to the needs, the living needs of the students, like we're doing right now. You can learn just as well face-to-face facilitated by technology as you can often in a classroom, especially if it allows you to do something else that allows you to engage in your own passion and lift your own lives. 21st century universities also are going to be affordable. I've seen a lot of different types of, you know, university ideas. Some of them are, you know, like it's free. It's free to the student. Everything's free. But after they graduate, if they graduate with a job making over, let's say, $50,000 a year, for the next five years, they pay 5% of their income back to the university so that the next class comes in. What are your thoughts on different, you know, creative funding for universities and universities that offer those types of services? I think uh, that's called an income share agreement. And I think it's a great idea. It actually was piloted first at uh, Purdue. And the the main thing, though, is that the students don't feel like they are indentured servants to a specific investor. So I like your idea of go to school free, um, depending on your income, go to school free, and then uh, be obliged in some contractual way to pay that back for those that follow. Daniel, the the United States' biggest problem strategically is lack of talent. That's what every CEO will tell you. They're going through a baby boomer transition, post-baby boomer transition, and they're looking for high-quality talent. And people talk about there not being enough of it in the United States. Baloney. We we have enough talent in the United States, but what happens is 80% of the people that have college degrees came from the upper income quartile in the United States. And 80% of the talent lies untapped in the lower income quartile. So there are people, there's plenty of intelligence, plenty of talent, plenty of skill. They're just people that can't find a way to put the money together and the time together to go to college because there's life and they're first generation, they're low income. So we have the 21st century universities like UCF, I think did a fine job of it. It was one of the reasons that I was so attracted to UCF. The 21st century universities will recognize their job is to generate talent for the economy and give people an opportunity for a different kind of life. Then they will create access on ramps, financial on ramps, transfer on ramps, and digital on ramps so that people can get that college degree while getting a good job and then transition their lives and become part of that talent that will lift the United States. Uh, in this next strategic brain-oriented, idea-oriented economy. 
You wrote an article in December talking about how university <laughs> rankings should go from exclusivity to improving social mobility, right? And, and I really- Amen, brother. <laughs> right? So let's talk about that because I think you briefly were talking about it earlier, but let, let's elaborate on that subject and what are other ways that we can improve social mobility and make it a bigger deal than what it is now? First of all, it has to be important. You know, university rankings are done by other universities. So they, they become self-perpetuating, internal looking, and in many cases have to do with, you know, like faculty publications, many have, that can be translated impact, but it's more about the idea than the impact. We have to transition to where, uh, if, if it's true that the most important thing universities can do for individuals and for the United States is identify, develop, and generate talent and ideas, then we have to hold those as paramount. So as I said, we have to have rankings that measure social mobility. So what is social mobility? That is really if, like you and I both came from, well, I can speak for myself. You're a first generation. I don't know about your income, but I was low income. If you are stuck in that generation after generation, then you don't have social mobility. If something gives you the ability to go to any income level, to the highest income level, regardless of where you started, that's social mobility. And there are a couple things that can do that. One is having parents that are engaged. Another is having a college degree. And it turns out that a college degree is even more powerful than where your parents came from and how engaged they were in your life. So a college degree is incredibly powerful, is an incredibly powerful tool that lets anybody from any income move to any other income category. That's social mobility. What does it do from a generational point of view? Um, one of the things that I think about a lot is you it, you know, it's nice that you, as a first-generation person, were able to get that a good job after college. But what's more important from my point of view is that if you have a family and children, they will never be at the same. So if you didn't go to college and you had a family and children, one out of five of them may have gone to college. It's going to be exactly the opposite if you went to college. Four out of five of them will go to college. So we have to change First, that's why first-generation people are so important to the larger picture, because not only because of them, but because of their children and the next generation. So we have to hold a 20 to 25-year view uh, to change this country and to change opportunities for whole families. So with looking at it in a 20 to 25-year view, where do you see the university system in America in 20 to 25 years from now? And how is it different from today? I think it'll be different from today because we'll be focused on identifying talent regardless of resources, number one. It will hold itself accountable to how well it developed that talent, number two. Number three, it will be in partnership with the people who can deploy the talent and the ideas. And those are the companies. Those are the government agencies. Those are the entrepreneurs. So it will see its job as being a seamless idea and talent developer with them rather than throwing virtually a finished student over the wall and saying, you know, student, you're on your own or graduate, you're on your own or company, you know, here's a group of students that have graduated. If you like them, hire them. Uh, that's very different than saying, hey, company, Lockheed Martin, 
we're in it, we're in it with you. We will start working with you and students in their freshman, sophomore, junior years. This will be a seamless pipeline, and and we will work together with you to make sure that we are we are a community that works well together. That's what I think a 21st century university will do. How do you do that with all types of majors? I think that's easy to do with engineering and business, but like, how do you do that with the liberal arts majors? That's, you know, I think that's an incredibly uh, important question. And I don't think that liberal arts majors are separate from what I was saying. For example, Lockheed Martin hires liberal art majors. Let me back up just for a minute and talk about the 21st century. You and I both know that low-level cognitive tasks are being automated by artificial intelligence, right? So a number of the things that we used to depend on a person for, we would rather depend on a computer for. The weather, travel, shopping, you know? We, we don't depend on the mystery shopper. We depend on Amazon to tell us what the best deal is out there. So what that means to me is that what we are teaching cannot stop with low-level cognitive tasks. We can't teach, drill, and kill. This elevates the liberal arts because what starts becoming important are the humanities. Wisdom, the understanding of human creativity, the understanding of teamwork, the ability to think beyond what is known. All of those are things that the humanities does a good job teaching. So people in the humanities are getting more and more important to companies like Amazon and Google and Lockheed Martin. Now, at the same time, how we live in community, we live sustainably, how we live in urban settings, for example, becomes more and more a human dimension to problem. And more and more, human, those who study the humanities and liberal arts become more and more in demand. So I think the economy is going to generate a demand for people that have humanities in their background. But having said that, I think everybody is gonna to have to have some kind of depth in some quantitative or digital uh, discipline in order to function in the future economy. Del, what do you think, You know, is there a question or something that you would like to talk about that I have not asked you? Maybe the responsibility of the student. Let's talk about it. What is the responsibility of the student? You know, the university, can offer things, the student has to engage. And, you know, one of the things I would say, we talked about engagement quite a bit. One of the things that I would add to that is having each other's back, developing community, making an investment in someone else, you know, while you're in college, having three or four good friends that, that you're their accountability partner on, uh, making sure that they're not stepping back when they should step forward for an internship or whatever. And then this idea of bringing others along, you know, especially first generation, as someone that has been, that's made it through, that's been first generation, that's gotten a good job, you know, really hasn't, not, not just owes, but has a real opportunity to show someone else the way, give them a hand up, uh, you know, bootstrap them along, because it's really hard when your parents can't do that. Uh, but there are people in your community that can. So I would say, you know, if there's one thing that, that I would think about as someone listening to this pod, podcast, I'd be thinking about, you know, whose back do I have? And uh, not only who has my back, but whose back do I have? Who am I going to 
who are the one or two people that I'm going to make sure they become their very best selves. And when I get my degree and get a good job, what am I going to do uh, beyond doing what I do for my family? What am I going to do for somebody else from my community? And, and what do you think are, you know, three actionable things that students can go and do and, and take responsibility and also give back or not even students, maybe alumni as well. Yeah. Well, uh, taking responsibility for yourself, you know, build that resume, get engaged with your discipline as, as soon as you think you know what you, what it is for giving back. I would say, try to find one or two people to help every year, whether they're in your community or family that, um, and help them navigate college, the responsibility for the colleges, the 21st century colleges is make it simple, make it straightforward be transparent, streamline things for students. Don't make it easy for the university, make it easy for the student. And that's going to change the the nature of our communities and the nature of this country. Very, very interesting. I think those are very great actionable steps. So Del, I I always finish every episode with one last question. Um, And before I I ask you that question, I just want to honestly thank you so much for taking your time and just sharing so much knowledge that you've shared, so much great advice for students, first generation, non-first generation. It's been amazing advice. And it's my pleasure, Daniel. I, I really can't thank you enough. But you know, here's the reality. I also understand that students are listening to this podcast, whether at the gym or they're driving, they're multitasking. And so All I right. always want to end the episode with what is one thing that you would want a student listening to this episode to take away? Engage. Engage in your own education, engage in your community, step out of yourself. Love it. Dell, how can students connect with you? What is the best way? Oh, they're welcome to connect with me um, on LinkedIn. Uh, I have a good uh, group of uh, followers there. But uh, also, let me give you an email address that I'm happy to answer uh, questions or engage with students at. It's uh, a underscore Dale, D-A-L-E underscore Whitaker, W-H-I-T-T-A-K-E-R at yahoo.com. That's my personal address. It's not where I do business. Uh, and it's a great place to, to uh, have these career type discussions. I will put those in the show notes just in case um, students didn't catch that. And uh, Dale, again, thank you so much. And thank you for everybody that's listening to this podcast. Catch you guys on the next episode. If you're listening to me right now, you, my friend, have made it to the end of the podcast. I want to take some time to thank you and congratulate you for being different and taking control of your career, doing things like listening to this podcast, putting yourself out there and building the experience needed to land your dream job is what's going to set you apart and not be just another statistic. So great job. Keep it up. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with your friends and make sure you subscribe and leave us a review. Talk to you soon.